Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard Podcast. Our mission is simple. Find God, find others, find yourself. That's it. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information on Reveal, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. There have been some highly influential people who have walked the planet. Founding fathers like John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, people like Newton and Einstein and uh, Leonardo da Vinci, not the turtle. Uh, people like uh, Susan B. Anthony and Mandela and Mother Teresa. And you, you can possibly throw Constantine the Great in there for various things that he's done. And we can go all throughout history, all of which have played an important, influential role. But we can make a strong case that no one has had more global historic impact as has Jesus. Uh, he has influence on culture, really cannot be measured. Entire, civil, entire civilizations were changed by his teachings. Uh, governments were established on his wisdom, schools and hospitals, uh, humanitarian aid given out in his name. Regardless of what you believe about Jesus today, it would not be a leap to say that he has been the most influential person who has ever walked the planet. Or if we're saying the greatest show on earth. Never has there been someone so loved and someone who has been so hated. And even today, 2,000 years later, continues to be uh, the most polarizing figure in all of culture. So we're looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of John. John was a disciple of Jesus and he writes his gospel. Gospel just means good news. And John writes out of what he experienced uh, with Jesus and the verse that has pushed us forward in this series uh, is John 20, verse 31, where John says this, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, look, I saw some incredible things. I can't write it all down, but I've chosen these things in order that you might become, you might come to believe in Jesus as I have believed in Jesus. Believe that he's more than just a good teacher or a social crusader, that he's actually God, he's good, and he's life. And so we're going to be in John chapter 12, starting verse 9 today. If you have your Bibles, you can break that out. But let's go ahead and pray as we uh, jump into God's Word today. Lord, we, um, we want to recognize today, even as we transition into your Word, we want to continue to dwell upon your grace that is for us. We want to continue to dwell upon uh, your goodness over us your banner of love that rests upon us. And I would pray that as even as we look into your word, that we would not forget that. That regardless of what circumstances may show today, that we would still believe that you are good and you are kind and believe that you will see us through this storm. And would you speak to us? And would you especially speak to anyone that might be here that might feel apart from you or feel distance. Maybe it's something that they did, or maybe it's a trial and they feel like, like you're nowhere to be found. Would you show yourself? Would you speak over each one of us what we need to hear? Reveal yourself to us, Lord, we pray. And as we give our offering, let us do so in an attitude of worship, by putting you first in all things. Let us be the hands and feet of Jesus both within our church and outside of these walls and around the world as we try to represent you well, that through our small body and through our, the small part that we play in the global church, that we would have an impact within our church family, outside of these walls, always bringing more in and always reaching out. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. John 12, verse 9. Uh, 
when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now you remember Lazarus. He was in uh, chapter 11. Uh, he was dead for four days, and then Jesus shows up, and with a word he speaks, Lazarus come forth, and this guy comes hopping out, wrapped in grave clothes. He was the original walking dead, and, and, and four days in the tomb, and Jesus brings him out. And you don't come back from four days dead and contain that type of story. And so the story leaked out. The ripples and the, the shockwaves just kind of began to spread and people began to hear about not only Jesus, but they began to hear about this dead guy that's actually walking around Jerusalem. And so people were like, like we would be today, like, I got to go touch him. I got to ask him, what was that like? And there's a, there's a, so people are starting to gather, not only to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. And so that's kind of the backdrop of our story. And the religious leaders are not happy about it. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, who is as well, Jesus, all right? It's going to be a two-for-one killing. We're going to get rid of Jesus, and we're going to get rid of this walking billboard that was dead and now alive. We're going to get rid of both of them so we can start to squash this thing of, of, that's beginning to spread, and people will finally lose interest and kind of walk away. Now, if, if you're Lazarus, you have to be thinking, you're going to kill me again. I mean, it's like, I've already died once can I catch a break? See, you thought you had a bad week. This guy's been dead, alive, and now they're going to kill him again. That's a bad week, okay? So, chief priests make plans um, to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, here's the root of their concern. They were losing market share to Jesus. And at the core of it, they were jealous. Here's Lazarus who was dead and now he lives. The people saw the funeral. They saw the dead body. They were there as it was wrapped in grave clothes. They put him in the tomb. One, two, three, four days. Jesus shows up, shouts his name. He comes out and now everyone is starting to believe because of the miracle that they began, that, that, that they saw. Word spreads. Many start to believe that Jesus is not just a rabbi that brings wine to the party, but is actually the long-awaited Messiah. Remember, everything in the Old Testament points to the day of when a deliverer would come to the people. And so they're starting to believe that maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And out of response, the religious leaders, they're jealous. And so their solution is to remove Jesus and the evidence of Jesus. So, jealousy. Anyone, uh, no one could admit this last service because uh, they, they just, you know, I, I did, but they didn't. Uh, anyone, can you say, do you struggle with jealousy at all? I'll, I'll tell you that I do. Thank you. See, there's, that's why you're my favorite. First service, I don't even try for them. I'm just going to be honest with you. No, I'm joking. I, I struggle with it, especially when I was younger. In relationships, I can be a jealous person. And it's, it's been one of those, and I remember back at 14, 15, 16, 17, memorizing scripture of trying to, you know, get the upper hand on this thing. And jealousy is, is an emotion that causes us to abandon logical, rational thinking and causes us to focus on what we don't have instead of what we do have. We start to think about things like, why do you have what I want? And why are they getting all the breaks? And why can I be more like them? And why did you get it? I'm as good as you. Matter of fact, I think I'm a little better than you. So I should have it. Why are you getting it? Jealousy will cause our focus to settle on how we've been wronged, how we've been cheated, how we've been less than, how we've been robbed of what we think is rightfully ours. And the religious leaders, they had 
all kinds of influence over people, all kinds of possibility to do good and to sow into that culture, but all they could focus on was the people that they lost instead of the opportunity they still had in front of them. And that's what jealousy does. That's what envy does to us. It minimizes what you have and maximizes what you don't. Hey, the story of Lucifer, right? He was uh, very possibly, Ezekiel tells us, perhaps the most beautiful and powerful of all angels created. A special anointing rested on him. Ezekiel 28 says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Right? He had everything except the thing he didn't. And minimize what you have, maximize what you don't. He wanted to be above God to receive worship, so he threw away everything that he had to try to achieve that which he didn't have. Envy. Remember Adam and Eve, paradise, the full run of the garden, all of their needs met, and all that was told to them was the one rule, just don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Now, I'll ask when I get up there, God, why was the tree in the middle of the garden? It's like for us... For us that have OCD and those of us, does anyone else have to touch things in museums even when it says do not touch? I touch everything, all right? I've gotten into so much trouble. Well, it's like, God, why in the middle? Like, can you not put it up on top of a, a volcanic mountain that spews lava several times a day? Or what about, what about going and placing it on, uh, on an island way far away and then could go to Eve and say, Eve, you need to keep your man away from the island because between you and the island, I, I, I placed a bunch of man-eating sharks. And remember, Eve, as of now, there's only one man, right? I mean, it could have made it a little more difficult, but here's what I think. Now, uh, I have no biblical evidence of this, but I know many people think that it was a fruit tree. But it says that Eve ate first, and so here's what I've, I've come to believe. That it was in some way, uh, and the, uh, the tree was aromatic and filled the garden with a smell that women cannot resist. For I think it was a chocolate tree. <laughs> if the man made first, I think it was a pizza and wing tree, right? But I'm, all right, so don't quote me on that one. So jealousy, they leave everything that they have, they minimize what they have, all the blessings of God, all the care, all, all of that provided for them to take a chance on the one thing that they didn't have. And that's what jealousy does. So how does that play out in your life? Is there any area where jealousy is running unchecked today? Have you lost sight of what you have because you can't get your vision off of what you want or what you don't have? So it's Thanksgiving, right? The time that we enter into a season of hopefully giving thanks. And my encouragement is that you take a step back, survey all that you have, and begin to give thanks for what God has given you. And, and, and remove this jealousy that will cause us to minimize what we don't have and, 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 maxim, and focus on what we uh, uh, don't have. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowds that came to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the feast is the Passover, and during uh, Passover feast, Jerusalem would swell uh, in, uh, in a uh, population. Verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now on the Christian calendar, we know this is Palm Sunday. We've celebrated it numerous times. Every year uh, we celebrate that. So I want you to picture the scene. Jesus is riding into town. All the Jewish people are lining the street because they believe that he is the deliverer. And they have their palm trees and, and their branches. And they're shouting out Hosanna, which means save us or save us now. And they are what they're shouting is that, hey... Get the Roman oppression off of our back. Now's the time. Hosanna, save us. Let's start this uprising and let's get rid of our Roman oppressors. 
And so that, that's, it's, they were stirred into a frenzy. All of the Old Testament pointing to the day when the Messiah would come. Well, now they already saw Jesus, right? Turn the water into wine, fed the 5,000. The blind received sight. A man who had been lame for 38 years suddenly was able to walk. The dead guy, four days later, he's out of the tomb. And they're starting to believe maybe this really is the one. And so they're, you know, hot into worship. Save us. Save us now. Save us now. You're going to liberate us from Roman oppression and lead the revolution. But watch the next verse. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Let me think about this. If you're riding into town the long awaited deliverer to vanquish all sorts of oppression, the donkey doesn't seem like quite the right animal to ride in on, does it? I mean, you would think that you'd be coming in on this, on this uh, military conquest, on this, on this horse that's tall and muscular, and he comes in on a donkey. And what they couldn't see was that yes, Jesus was the Messiah, and yes, he was the deliverer, but he did not come to break Roman oppression, he came to break a spiritual oppression. And the darkness was not Rome, but it was the grip of Satan over our hearts and over our minds. Revelation 19 says, he will return one day, not riding on a donkey that time, but he's going to be riding on a horse with a sword. But now he rides in on a donkey, a man of humility, who will freely give his life over, where creation will kill its creator. Look, the rest of that verse. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, 500 years before that, prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, that's what it's referring to. 500 years before that, Zechariah said, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. If you're going to war, you ride on a majestic horse. But he's not going to war against his enemies. He's going to a cross for his friends. This wasn't a power move by Jesus. It was a move of humility. Matter of fact, this idea of a donkey became kind of a point of criticism. Uh, You can see here, this was uh, sketched on plaster walls around 200 AD. Uh, It was found in uh, 1856, somewhere in there. It's known as Alexamenos Graffitio. And it is a, uh, a picture depicting a Christian worshiping. Now it's hard to see, so put that overlay up there. That's the overlay. Go back to the other one. Now go back to it again. Uh, next one there. All right, so that's the overlay. The idea is Alexamenos worships God or his God. And the idea is that here is this worship taking place of this person stretched out on a cross with the head of a donkey. It was this idea that, that your God, the one that you say is going to be your deliverer, rode in on a donkey. It was this idea of, of, for some, embarrassment, and for others who were not believers, took it at a point of saying, I can't see someone who's coming to be a deliverer riding on a donkey. And honestly, neither could his disciples. Look at what what it says. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things. Right? Imagine if you're the disciples. You've left everything, your jobs, your families, to come to follow Jesus. And all that you've seen and all that you've experienced, and you've waited for the day when Jesus says, all right, boys, it's time. Pick up swords. We're we're taking over. And now it's getting closer and closer, and they're thinking it's time to overthrow Rome. And now you see your Savior riding in, in his glorious moment, on a donkey. Imagine Jesus' feet dragging on the ground as he's riding on the donkey, kicking up dust kind of a humiliating sight, right? And his disciples said they didn't understand what was taking place. 
None of it made sense. But look at the rest of verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So when, when did they finally understand what was going on? Was it during or was it after? Now, come on, talk to me. During or after? It was after. Most of the time, when we're in some type of trial, some type of situation, some type of, of circumstances that are difficult, the only time that we see how God was working in that circumstance is after we've come through it, right? While you're in it, oftentimes you don't see the hand of God. If we did, we could stop complaining. But oftentimes, when we're in the trial, when we're in the situation, we don't see the hand of God, just like the disciples at that moment. None of it made sense. God didn't seem to be in it. But after they passed through it, after Jesus was glorified, they look back and they're like, oh, now we get it. The prophet actually prophesied that, and he was, he was coming not to overthrow Rome, but it was a spiritual adversary. He was, he was coming, and everything started to make sense. Listen, after the storm is when we often see it. But during is when it's tough. Because when you're in it, often you don't see it. And some of you, you're in it now. And you don't see it. But one day when you pass through it, you will look back and you will see that God was in it. When it hurts the most is often the times where it feels like we we see God the least. And when the disciples were living it, none of it made sense. Messiah's riding in on a donkey. We don't understand. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe Jesus isn't the one. Maybe we completely missed it. We put our trust in someone else after him. None of it makes sense. Remember uh, uh, the story of Joseph, Genesis 37. At the age of 17, Joseph had his share of bad luck. He was uh, the youngest of uh, 12 siblings. Um, he was his father, uh, was Jacob. He was his father's favorite. And his father made him a coat of many colors. And uh, Joseph had these weird dreams that all of his older siblings, brothers, would one day bow down to him, which isn't abnormal. Every younger sibling has a dream where you're going to rule over your older siblings, right? I've, I've, I have an older brother. And so he's having these dreams, and he tells the brothers, and the brothers are furious at him, thinking he's arrogant. And one day it came that they had enough, and the father, Jacob, sent Joseph out to uh, see his brothers who were tending sheep. And they decided to do away with him. So they stripped him of his coat, and they threw him into a pit. Now at that moment, if we could go back in time and we could find Joseph in a pit and jump down there with him and say, uh, Joseph, I'm doing an interview for Reveal Church. I know you don't know who we are, but uh, tell us, Joseph, um, do you see the hand of God right now? What do you think he's going to say? I mean, he may say, I- I'm hoping, I'm trusting, I'm believing, but right now, yeah, it doesn't look very good, does it? I'm in a pit, and my own brothers put me in a pit you see the hand of God? No, because when you're in it, you don't see it. And what did the sibling, what did his brothers do next? Well, they did what any older sibling does after torturing their younger brother or sister. Then they sat down to eat a meal. (laughs) Seemed like a good time to eat, right? We're just getting rid of our brother, so you guys hungry? And as they raised their eyes uh, and look, and look, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites, probably a Dodge caravan of Ishmaelites, was coming to Gilead. And their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh and on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah, one of the brothers, said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? And we're like, oh, finally someone comes to his senses. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. 
Now, they take Joseph out of the pit. Joseph's like, oh, thank you, brothers. I knew, I knew you were going to get me. Uh, we're selling you. Now, once again, if we could go back in time and say, uh, Joseph, uh, here for Reveal News, uh, we're wondering, you're, you're in shackles now, and you've just been sold to the Ishmaelites. Uh, which was worse, the pit or slavery? Uh, Joseph, do you see the hand of God? What do you think he's going to say? I went from a pit into slavery, leaving everything that was familiar, everything that I know, leaving my family, not sure I'm ever going to see my father again, who's going to think I'm dead because my siblings are going to tell him I'm dead. And there he goes. When you're in it, you don't see it. Later, Joseph is then uh, put into prison for something that he never committed, completely innocent in it. Now he's in prison. If we could go back in time again and say, Joseph, us again, reveal news. Where's God in this? It'd be really difficult to see how God was working everything out because when you're in it, often you don't see it. And so this, this is the story of what takes place with, with Joseph. Let's be honest. It's easy to trust when you're the father's favorite, isn't it? When you feel like you're the golden child of God, and I'll be honest with you, there's been times I've kind of felt that way. As a matter of fact, I told, I told my wife one day, we were, we were early on in our marriage, and she was, did something uh, against me, and then she stubbed her toe or something right afterwards. I was like, hey, God takes care of me. So you don't come against God's golden child. And it's kind of this thing. I, you know, I don't really believe that, but it was it's funny at the time. All right, so it's easy to, to, to have faith and to believe when you're the father's favorite. But when the father doesn't seem to be around, it's easy to be faithful when the sun is shining on you and the, and the sun is on your back. But what happens when the sun grows, goes dark? Stories of disappointment on every level that suck hope out of us. Dread consumes us. Fear approaches us. Now I assume you've never been literally thrown into a pit. Some of you might have siblings. Maybe they actually did throw you in a pit. But we've all been put in a pit figuratively. When the phone rings and the test results are in and they're not good. Or family member is diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. Or your boss calls you in and lays you off or fires you. Your spouse breaks their marital vows. The person you love most walks away from you. With life comes seasons of bitter, brutal winter and no one is exempt. But there's a great verse in this that can be easily overlooked. It's found in chapter 37, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites, and the Midianites and the Ishmaelites uh, connected, same, same long story, but they're, they're one in, in the same. A couple reasons, but we won't go into it. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Potiphar's, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now we're just going to focus on that word, meanwhile. Possibly the greatest word in our story because it means that the story is being played out on two fronts. Just when Joseph thought he was, he was going to live the rest of his life either in prison or as a slave. Just when Jacob, Joseph's dad, thought that his favorite son was dead. Meanwhile means that the story isn't quite over. Meanwhile jumps out. It reminds us, uh, kind of remember in the old silent movies uh, when there was the damsel in distress and she's tied to the railroad track and she's bound up and the train's coming and it seems like there's no hope and then all of a sudden on the screen comes this car that says, meanwhile, back at the, back at the, yeah, see some of you saw it too. Meanwhile, back at the ranch and it meant that something else is taking place. 
that there's more taking place than what you might realize. And it leaves the door cracked that the story isn't quite over. And it suggests that there's more to come. And for Joseph, it meant that God wasn't finished with him. It meant that God hadn't written the final chapter of his life. His brothers may have thought they'd gotten rid of him. Joseph may have thought he's never going to see his father again. The father may have thought his son was dead. But meanwhile, back at the heavenly ranch, running parallel with his story, God was at work. When you're in it, you don't see it. But when Joseph comes through it, he's going to look back and he's going to see it all clearly. So how do you trust God when life puts you in a pit? Some of us were in a pit today. You've been in a pit for a while. And it's found in the meanwhile principle. Because meanwhile means that God is up to something. That God is working another storyline for you. Meanwhile means that, that you've not been forgotten. That it affirms the hidden hand of God in every situation. Meanwhile means something is always going on behind the scenes. Meanwhile means that God is still for you. Now you may know the rest of the story. Eventually uh, he finds favor again. Becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. He interprets a dream of a, a famine that is coming. So Egypt is stockpiling food. Now all the surrounding communities, villages are coming in, uh, countries coming into Egypt because they're the only people that have food. And who shows up on his door? His brothers. There's a long exchange of how, when they find, Joseph finally reveals himself, and the brothers are like, dude, he's going to kill us. It's like he's the second in charge of all of Egypt. Whatever he says goes. And they're like, eh, sorry, Joseph. But listen how, listen how Joseph summarizes his life. All of the circumstances. The pit, the slavery, the prison, the darkness forced upon him. He says in chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. Hey, listen, some of you, this is why you're here. Can I remind you that we're at whatever you're going through right now, there is a meanwhile. There is a meanwhile for you. And it might mean that you take the, you take the, the strength within you and you speak it out over, a, over, over Satan that says, you thought you'd destroy me, but God was restoring me. Maybe you're just going to go home tonight and in your room you just say, you, you thought you would knock me down, but God was raising me up. And you thought you'd kill me, but God was making me stronger. And you thought you could run me off, but God was anchoring my feet. And you thought the story was over, but God wasn't finished writing yet. And for some of you, that's the best word you can hear right now. That your story is not finished. Let me have the band come up. Your story is not finished. There's a meanwhile principle working for you and so the disciples see jesus coming in riding on a donkey feet dragging the ground donkey's head hanging low and you can just kind of see it's like this isn't what we dreamt about he's coming on those white steed and sword in hand and we're gonna you know take this thing and we're gonna slay some 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 roman officials and and none of it made sense but when they came through it they looked back and saw wow this was god was in every part of this so what does that mean for you today what is the situation that you need to be infused with hope again? You might not see it, but that you would have the faith to believe that one day when you're through it, you're going to look back, and then it will make sense. What does that look like in your life? And regardless of what those circumstances are, can we continue to step in and be faithful regardless of our circumstances? Can we still with faith proclaim that God is good? 
even when we may not at this moment be experiencing the goodness as we would like to experience His goodness. What does that mean for you today? 